race in Europe remains a major marker of difference. Eastern Europeans are white, mostly. Even though they enjoy certain privileges, they also continue to be minoritized, orientalized, sexualized. But they are seen in Western Europe as more fitting, and they do not seem to pose a threat to the dominant Western societies, while Muslims continue to be perceived as threatening to Europeanness. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley. My name is Sarah Grossman, and I'll be your host today. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Agata Lishak, a professor of migration studies at Bard College Berlin, who works at the intersection of migration, urban sociology, visual cultures, and gender studies. In this discussion, we talked about her work on Eastern European migration to the West, the experiences of migrant mothers in particular, and the relationship between gentrification and language in European cities. Here's the conversation. So to begin, a lot of your work has looked at Eastern European migration into Western Europe, specifically Germany and the UK. Um, For our audiences who are often US-based, can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of this immigration and how this came to be? Why do Eastern Europeans often move to Western Europe? Um, Well, when we think about the internal EU migration, free movement between EU member states is one of the pillars of the European Union, right? So in a sense, migration is inscribed into the the very idea of the European Union and into the structures. And the Schengen Agreement uh, made it even easier for people to move within uh, Europe by getting rid of border controls. I want to stress that um, it's crucial not to romanticize this freedom of movement in which Eastern Europeans as of recently have been able to partake because um, we should keep in mind that the loosening of the intra-EU borders goes hand in hand with the securitization and militarization of Europe's external borders, particularly Europe's southern border. Uh, and not just the Mediterranean, and I'm sure uh, also listeners in the US have seen many jarring images of the violence of that border, Uh, because we see them daily in the media, but Europe's borders extend even deep into African continent. Um, And even within the EU, the right of EU citizens to move freely is not equal, and the old divisions, so the north-south, east-west that you were asking about, but also the uh, colonial, post-colonial, the the center periphery are still very strikingly present. And um, the east-west migrations were accelerated uh, by the EU enlargements in 2004, 2007, and 2011. Of course, migrations from Eastern Europe to Western Europe have been always happening, right? Because migration has always been happening. But uh, it was accelerated uh, by the structural changes and by the inclusion of Eastern European countries in the EU structures. So in 2004, that was the large, the the biggest enlargement, uh, 10 uh, new countries joined the European Union. Uh, So the, the, the number of EU member states grew from 15 to 25. And 
most of those countries were Eastern European countries except for Cyprus and Malta. And then in 2007, Bulgaria and Romania joined in, and 2013, Croatia. And um, Eastern European countries are often described uh, reductively as a bloc, so clearly the Cold War uh, mentality is hard to kick, right? Um, but the migration patterns that resulted from the EU enlargement uh, are hardly uniform. So Hungary and Slovakia, for example, did not experience much migration, uh, but Poland and Romania did. Uh, and the destination countries for individual uh, Eastern European member states also differ. And the reasons for these differences are manifold, ranging from the economic uh, situation in those individual countries and regions through various entry barriers that some old EU member states imposed on the new member states and geographic location. And I don't think we will be able to go through all of these <laughs> uh, points, but uh, maybe I'll just briefly focus on Poland um, as the, the largest country of those who joined the EU in 2004 and as the country uh, from where most new EU migrants in Western Europe come from. So Poland is a country of 38 million people uh, and it experienced this huge, massive uh, migration in and after 2004. More than 2 million people left Poland, uh, settling mostly in other EU countries, mostly at that time in the UK and in Ireland. And currently, the UK and Germany are the two countries uh, that receive most migration from Poland. The increase in the number of Poles was particularly evident in the UK because there uh, the number of Poles went up from 75,000 in 2003 to over half a million in 2010. So it was really striking. And so Poles are the largest group among all migrants and the second largest uh, minority in Britain right now after Indians. And in Germany, the situation looks differently because the history of migration from Poland to Germany is very different from the one between Poland and the UK. Um, and it's also different because Germany was actually one of the two countries next to Austria uh, that imposed those um, entry barriers for new EU member states after the, the 2004 enlargement. So even though technically Poles and other Eastern Europeans were um, EU members and EU citizens, they did not have the same rights in Germany and Austria as the old EU members. And those um, entry barriers were lifted only in 2011. So for seven years, um, Eastern Europeans' access to German and Austrian labor markets was pretty much restricted. And as to what motivates migration, uh, again, the reasons differ from person to person and from country to country, but to stay with the Polish case uh, for now, uh, unemployment and poverty were crucial. So uh, in Poland, because of the neoliberal um, austerity measures that were introduced in the 90s, the, the so-called shock, shock doctrine, right? Uh, the, the years of transformation, uh, unemployment at around the year 2004 was over 20%. It is now at 6%. Uh, but when it was at around 20% and Eastern regions of Poland were particularly hit by it, uh, of course, that 
uh, motivated a lot of people to go and look for jobs somewhere where they would be available because they did not have them uh, in Poland and uh, also poverty, especially compared to um, not just other West European countries, but also other East European countries was striking. So Poland, among the 10 EU countries that joined in 2004, Poland was one of the poorest when it, in terms of GDP. Um, but to give it a more human dimension, um, I could perhaps mention this very striking conversation I had with one of the um, uh, Poles I interviewed in the UK, who, when explaining why she moved to the UK, she said that one day in her hometown in eastern Poland, she was walking down the street and her kid asked for a banana when they were passing uh, a fruit stand and she could not afford it. And so she had to turn away in shame. And she says that in the UK, she can't afford it, right? But I also would not want to reduce all of this migration uh, from Poland or from Eastern Europe in general to those push factors as they are commonly known in like neoclassical migration studies. Um, because they're just not enough to understand the, the intricate workings of migration. Uh, the popular attempts at explaining migration with those pull and push factors uh, are largely dismissed today because they fail to address the social, economic, political um, and other processes and power geometries that lie at the root of global inequalities and thus also at the root of migration. Um. Thank you so much for that great introduction. I have so many questions in response, but I think an interesting entryway would be to talk about um, uh, racial construction in Europe versus in the US. In, in the US, there is a really strong racial hierarchy as has been well documented. Um, at the same time in Europe, there also is a racial hierarchy, but um, it may be more rooted in blood. You're German, you're Austrian. Mm which is different from being Polish. And in the US, that might be all part of the same category of white. Mm. Um, do you, can you talk a little bit about this racial construction and how it might differ from the US and how that plays out in, in mm. the current immigration conversation that we're, that we're having? Um, yeah, when you look at the debates on migration across Europe, and of, again, like these debates differ from country to country, uh, and they're historicized differently. Um, but you can really see very clearly how race, but also religion, gender, and class intersect, and how these accumulated intersections uh, stigmatize and marginalize migrants in multiple ways. Um, so ever since 9-11, basically, the main suspect group in most West European uh, and increasingly also East European countries are the Middle Eastern Muslim uh, migrants. And race in Europe uh, remains a major marker of difference. And it is an important factor to consider also in the context we've been talking about, so East European migration to Western Europe. It's often overlooked um, because Eastern Europeans are white, mostly, right? But uh, uh, even though they enjoy certain privileges uh, because of their whiteness, so cer certain obvious white privileges, uh, they also continue to be minoritized in various ways, so orientalized, sexualized, um, 
but those privileges based on whiteness, but also on religion. So most Eastern Europeans are Christian or atheists. So uh, they are seen in Western Europe as more fitting and they do not seem to pose a threat to the dominant Western societies, while Muslims continue to be perceived as threatening to Europeanness. So to put it very bluntly, as I did in one of the articles I've written, is that uh, the highly educated white European non-Muslim migrants are generally more welcome than the so-called unskilled non-white, non-European Muslim migrants. Um, in that vein, I, I'd like to ask about discourse around the two different mm-hmm. mi- migrant groups. Um, the discourse around Muslim immigration, as you said, is very much rooted in fear and difference and othering. What is the discourse uh, around Eastern Europeans and how does that differ between the two groups? Mm. Well, actually in Germany, uh, currently, Poles or Germans with Polish background are rarely mentioned in public debates on migration because it's dominated by the so-called refugee crisis. Uh, And the presence of Poles or Germans with Polish background uh, um, is not particularly evident uh, in public debates, but also not in urban space. Like in Berlin, for example, there are very few uh, Polish shops or Polish restaurants. There are some, but uh, if we think of how big the, the group of Poles in Berlin is, it's the second largest minority after Turks, there are you know, so many more Turkish shops and uh, yeah, you just don't really feel it. No, you don't, you don't yeah. really feel like there are some parts of the city that may feel more Polish and you will see like two establishments next to each other. But uh, generally, when it comes to migrant infrastructures, um, they're really underrepresented. And it may have a lot to do with the proximity of Poland, right, to Berlin. It's only what, like 90 kilometers, so you can hop on the train or on the bus or on the car and drive to Poland and buy everything you miss from your home country, right? Um, and also because uh, the migration from Poland to Germany uh, has been happening for many years. And like, I don't really like talking about waves of migration, but it's been quite consistent, you know, with like some spikes and some uh, receding migration, but uh, there are many generations of migration. Um, and so the, the presence is not there, that, that they, or we, I should say, because I'm Polish too, <laughs> a Polish person living in Berlin, uh, we are often considered invisible migrants. And of course, this is, again, it's this racialized invisibility because it's assumed that all Poles are white and it's often wrongly assumed also that Germans are white. Right, so the, there seems to be this racial fit. Um, but this invisibility does not mean that there is no discrimination because that continues to happen. It's just that it's not as present in the debates. And in the UK, on the other hand, uh, polls seem to be much more visible, also because of the, in, the rapid increase in migration that I mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, because of the highly developed migrant infrastructures. Every single British town has a Polish shop. 
uh, the Polish accent in English is uh, clearly discernible in, especially in the service industry. So Poles in Britain are not just visible because of the, their presence in the, the city, um, but also audible because you can hear the accent or you can hear uh, Polish being spoken. Uh, but also uh, Poles are very strongly as the largest migrant group from Eastern Europe, uh, strongly present in uh, the popular discourses on migration in Britain. And it has intensified around Brexit. I was just going to ask about mm. that kind of discourse. Yeah, so um, in the, the campaign, the Leave campaign leading up to the Brexit vote, uh, Poles and other East European migrants were repeatedly named and shamed uh, by the Leave campaign. And in they what were, sense? They were presented as a threat to Britain, you know, as economically not really or uh, culturally? In all, on all levels. Uh, that not really uh, that taking away the jobs, you know. So basically, the the standard paradoxical discourses where migrants are blamed for stealing the jobs, but at the same time for being lazy and not fitting in, right? Uh, so this right wing populist discourse, and after the referendum, uh, many Eastern Europeans uh, have reported increased uh, xenophobia and verbal and physical attacks and a couple of people were actually killed in racist attacks on, on wow. Poles. Um, you've s written in particular about immigrant mothers from mm. Eastern Europe and I'm wondering why did you particularly focus in on the group? What can the experience of immigrant mothers tell mm. us about the experience of immigrants in general and the larger systems around immigration? Mm. So um, you're referring to the research project of which I was part at Humboldt University between 2013-2017. It was called Transforming and I worked with Magda Nowicka, Łukasz Krzyżowski, Ula Woźniak and other researchers. And we were um, looking into the recent migration from Poland, so the post-2004 migration from Poland to uh, British and German cities. So we're interested in how migrants coming from very ethnically homogenous settings and Polish cities are ethnically quite homogenous, uh, how they uh, encounter and make sense of the much larger diversity, ethnic diversity, religious diversity that they encounter in their new places of residence and what kind of multicultural skills they develop in the process, if any, and if any of those skills transfer back home. So we were really interested in how migration works in urban settings and in transnational settings at the same time. So when I was thinking about um, what to focus on within this project, I instantly thought of migrant mothers uh, because all mothers or like all child rearers, I should say, but in the case of Polish migrants and still in Germany and in also in Britain, it is primarily mothers who do all these child rearing practices, um, have a very unique access to the city because my mothers of small children, then they engage in very regular, repetitive, routine actions in public and in semi-public spaces where they encounter people like them who do similar things or the same things, but not exactly in the same way. 
And so I was interested in what happens in the process. What happens to those mothering practices, which are so um, strongly shaped by national and nationalistic discourses, right? So motherhood in general is, um, is very often uh, constructed as a, you know, like a higher national good and mothers as the reproducers of the nation. And um, I thought that migrant mothers um, are in this very unique position to question those dominant discourses on motherhood in which they were socialized, right? So in Poland, there is this discourse on the Polish mother, it's the, the figure, the archetype is called Matka Polka, which is actually two nouns and it means mother, Pole, but I guess it translates better as the Polish mother. So this sort of overprotective, um, hardworking, sacrificing, not ever thinking about herself, mother who not only uh, makes sure that the child survives and thrives, but also that the child is a good patriot. And the, the archetype developed very strongly in the 19th century when Poland didn't exist, right? So Poland was partitioned in the late 18th century and for 100, 123 years it didn't exist. And yet the language thrived and the culture thrived in hiding. And because many men went to fight and died in the many uprisings that uh, Poles had in, throughout the 19th century, mothers were sort of burdened with, you know, with the... Uh, regenerating with, the nation. Yeah, with regenerating the nation, right? And that archetype, you know, Matka Polka, it's been, uh, it's been so strongly reproduced through um, national culture, like works of national culture, like literature and music and paintings. And then after the Second World War uh, in People's Republic of Poland, it got another layer because then under communism, of course, the, the ideal mother had to not only to be this patriot and self-sacrificing woman, but also a good worker, a good socialist worker, right? So there was this double burden of both like working in factories or in offices and yet being there for the children. So this is a really overpowering um, model that uh, women in Poland have to deal with. Uh, but I also don't want to say that it's so special for Poland because of course those archetypes of ideal mothers are present across cultures, right? There's like the Italian mother, the, you know, the Israeli mother, the, uh, you know, all mothers, right? The German mother of like Kinder, Küche, Kirche, right? The, the 3K actually. Um, so the children, church and um, kitchen. So I'm not saying that this is so special for Polish mothers, although the historical context matters, but what interested me is how those women who become mothers or continue to be mothers in a migrant setting, how, if at all, they can free themselves from those dominant discourses and how they make sense of the dominant discourses, the national dominant discourses on motherhood in the places where they settle. And, and throughout, my yeah, throughout my research, I, I, it was quite fascinating to see that there's a lot of negotiation happening, that it's really liberating. Uh, despite 
various, of course, uh, difficulties that migrant mothers, especially low-income migrant mothers, face. Uh, you know, they are in a unique position to sort of like choose and pick uh, from whatever styles of mothering between these two places they find most fitting for their current position. And I don't think it's necessarily special for Polish mothers, but for migrant mothers in general. And uh, it's, it's important to talk about it, I find, especially in the time where uh, migrant mothers are vilified, you know, either as like as the contaminators of national cultures, right? As those who breed too much and so that their children who are not the proper citizens of that particular nation state that they take over. Um, and so, for example, Polish mothers in Britain, because many of the women who migrated after 2004, they were in their 20s and 30s and then very often they would get pregnant in Britain and it would seem like that they're overly fertile, like they're too fertile. So that they've been particularly in the right-wing press perceived as the threats to Britishness, but at the same time vilified in Poland as the traitors of the nation. I want to uh, move the conversation to some of the other work that you've looked at, which is about gentrification mm. in urban space. Um, and you've written that xenoglossophobia, my first time saying that mm. word, the fear or hate of foreign languages is not just an, a right-wing phenomenon, but also something that you see on the left. And can you explain what you mean by this? Um, right, so Berlin is now, as I'm sure also the listeners in the US will know, hailed as this international metropolis, right? Um, but it's important to remember that it, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, it was only in around 2012 that the number of foreign residents in Berlin exceeded half a million for a city of 3.5 million. Um, before that, so throughout the 90s, so in reunited Berlin throughout the 90s and early uh, 2000s, the number was growing at a relatively low rate at a few thousand per year. And after 2012, the increase of foreigners in the city um, is, has been more pronounced with between like 30,000 per year, 50,000 new arrivals per year. So the pace is faster and so there our presence in the city is more pronounced and quite literally so uh, because it's more audible, right? So walking to Berlin, uh, you know, going to bars and restaurants, but also doctors' offices, being on the subway, um, you will often hear multiple languages, right? So like Russian, Polish, Arabic, Persian, and a lot of English. And um, it's not necessarily because there's been some increase, um, like some dramatic increase in people from English-speaking countries settling in Berlin, but because English is a hypercentral language, right? It's so, regardless of where people come from, it's very likely that their second language next to their national language will be English, and so that this is the international language of communication. And so these demographic changes, the increased number of non-Germans settling in Berlin, uh, coincide with extreme housing crisis um, and gentrification. In the last few years, the rents in some parts of the city were more than doubled, right? And um, even though Berlin used to be hailed as an affordable capital, 
in Europe, uh, this, you know, th those days are long gone. Um, it now tops all the charts of the cities with most extreme rent increases. Like in one year, I think it was last year or two years ago, uh, the average rents in Berlin went up by 20%. Um, and one of the most affected districts is Neukölln, which the um, gentrification scholar from Humboldt University, Andre Ho, uh, calls an expert enclave. Um, Neukölln um, and increasingly also other parts of Berlin are experiencing a quite unprecedented internationalization of the rental market. Uh, and there have been ongoing protests, as I'm sure you've noticed, right, against um, these developments. And the protests are led by tenant organizations, some various other political associations and uh, initiatives, also some left-wing parties. Uh, and there are currently some very exciting deb debates happening um, on the question of expropriation of uh, some corporate landlords, so especially those that own more than 100,000 apartments, right? And many of these protests are visible in the street in the form of posters, graffiti, stickers. And so um, some of them I find openly xenophobic. And uh, the impulse to think about xenoglossophobia, so the fear of foreign languages in the city, um, was uh, I walked in Kreuzberg a couple of years ago when I saw this graffiti saying, if you want to speak English, go to New York, Berlin hates you. And I've seen similar types of graffiti with similar messages across the city, especially in those neighborhoods um, strongly affected by gentrification. So clearly those who wrote the graffiti do not see the newly arrived as potential allies, right? But as enemies and as a threat. and they don't pay or they don't seem to pay uh, much attention to the larger structural issues at play, um, which underpin the, this phenomenon. So like the, the housing crisis and gentrification. So this hatred of foreign languages uh, is not necessarily a new phenomenon, but in the contemporary context, it remains under research. In, in hearing this, um, your analysis of this, I'm wondering where class may fit into some of this because mm -hmm. Neukölln and Kreuzberg were formerly lower class or mm -hmm. artistic neighborhoods and I'm a native English speaker obviously but um, I assume if somebody has the education to learn English where they're speaking English with other internationals you're also at another mm. a kind of a different class level of maybe as uh, someone who lived there 20 years ago or 10 years ago mm. and do you see any connections there with with class and how these maybe left-wing activists view these gentrifiers? Mm -hmm. Right, so um, this is one of the uh, issues I would like to investigate in more detail because it is commonly perceived that those foreigners who speak English, even if it's not their native language, that they must be of certain class, most likely middle class or upper class, if they can speak that language, right? But it's very instructive to um, consult the work of the, the Dutch sociologist Abram de Swan, uh, who wrote this really interesting book, Words of the World, in which he talks about the global language system and how English came to dominate as the separate, uh, hyper central language, right? So um, it's not only the 
second or sometimes even first language in many of the post-colonial countries of the British Empire. But it's also the, the first mandatory uh, foreign language that is taught in schools across the world, right? So in Poland, in um, Japan, you know, in Peru, like they will teach English as the, as the, the, the foreign language, right? So uh, many of the migrants who come to Berlin and for whatever reasons, right? So some of them may be expats. So I guess like this is the class description of the migrants who come by choice and usually with some economic standing and prospects for a job uh, or lifestyle migrants. But there are also are other economic migrants or refugees for that matter who uh, are more likely to speak English rather than German when they arrive. And so over the years they may learn German, right? But it's the, the first language that they have in common with many other people. And quite often, as I know from um, the students at Bard College Berlin, who are a very international bunch, um, even those people for whom English is a second language, they will start speaking it in public in Berlin because then they don't feel so threatened by racist remarks as they do when they speak, for example, Arabic or mm. Russian. So it can also be a tactic, like a survival tactic in mm. contemporary urban space, right? So I really think that, uh, you know, like the intersections um, of uh, nationality, you know, linguistic skills, class, uh, and race like are really complex um, and I would not want to like, give like a very simple answer because I really like it should be researched properly I don't think it has been done so mm -hmm. yet but of course gentrification is like the replacement of working class uh, tenants by middle classes or upper classes right it's just that it's Gentrification does not always work in the same way everywhere. Quite on the contrary, there is a lot of research on planetary gentrification where uh, local differences are um, uh, very strongly pronounced. But also within Berlin, it's not like the same gentrification happening everywhere. To return to my former colleague from Humboldt University, uh, Andre Holm, he distinguishes several types of gentrification in Berlin like rent-driven gentrification, super-gentrification, the, the expat enclaves, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think this is, this is an exciting field and desire, like, you know, demands more research. I think this relates um, well to what you've written about the Polish Marxist activist, Rosa Luxemburg, who wrote that we will never be able to overcome the problems caused by the workings of capitalism if we continue to consider them only mm -hmm. locally and not for what they are, which is part of a global interconnected capitalist system. Can you explain what you mean by this and also how this relates to these gentrification mm -hmm. issues in Berlin? She already in her dissertation, Rosa Luxemburg, um, in, in which she was writing about the industrial development of Poland so in the 19th century, but she unpacked the, the intertwined workings of capitalism and imperialism and the dynamics at the root of globalization. Um, she's even better known for her study titled Accumulation of Capital, in which she argues that the limits that are inherent to capitalism drive, um, uh, drive imperialism and drive war. 
Uh, but more than anything, her work, I think, should be revisited today because of her unapologetic commitment to internationalism. Um, and in the context of what is happening in Berlin today, I think it would be extremely interesting to think of Rosa Luxemburg's commitment to internationalism, to international solidarity, uh, in connection to the work of the Marxist geographer Doreen Massey, um, who very famously debunked the popular and idealized notion of an era where uh, places were supposedly inhabited by some coherent and homogenous communities. Uh, she uh, argued very strongly that place and community are not the same thing, they're not coterminous, and places can hold multiple communities. And she argued during Massey for a progressive uh, or what she called also a global sense of place that acknowledges the connections of that place to places beyond it and is not threatened by it. So this connection, so in terms of gentrification, um, to go back to the work of Rosa Luxemburg and Doreen Massey and build on this, we would see that it's not a local problem in Berlin. I mean, it's perceived as local, but it's an international problem, right? It's, you know, huge tech companies, it's huge real estate uh, corporations, uh, and that singling out newcomers or migrants or however we want to call them and like singling them out based on their the language they speak or the you know their race uh, is counterproductive because then we don't see those larger structures and it's the larger structures that need to be addressed that's great thank you so much um a lot to think about um to end, are there any final comments you want to make about not just critiquing some of these uh, anti-gentrification efforts, but maybe offering advice or, or thoughts on a more inclusive way to mm. address some of the issues that are affecting cities in Europe in particular? Mm. Well, I would continue to channel the spirit of Rosa Luxemburg here, um, for whom struggle against capitalism came before national self-determination. Uh, we need more international and interlocal alliances and the large real estate and tech companies that tear our cities apart. And I know that this will resonate also with the listeners in San Francisco, uh, should be more strongly regulated and held accountable for the damage that they do. Um, and some of such alliances are already happening. So in Europe, there are activists and councils from various cities that try to tackle these issues together and work on tactics, strategies, and programs that would uh, render our cities more livable. And uh, we need more international alliances of this kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of Who Belongs with migration scholar Agata Lishak of Bard College Berlin. Find this episode and others at haasinstitute.berkeley.edu slash who belongs.